Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to intelligent people who like to think for themselves. I want to continue a discussion today that we began yesterday about the origin of life. I mean, after all, if we're going to discuss whether biblical creation is simply a mythical story that never happened, or is actually a history of a supernatural creation by an intelligent God, we need to take a look at the issue of the origin of living things, the origin of life from non-life. And at one level, you can break the problem down into two possibilities. There are two fundamental possibilities. One is, life arises by purely natural means from just matter and energy that behave according to what we call the natural laws, which are really just our observations of how matter and energy seem to behave when we look at them in a laboratory or in the cosmos. The other possibility is that from outside of the natural realm, from something that transcends just matter and energy, life was created. It was impressed upon material stuff. Sort of like in Genesis where it says man was made from the dust of the ground and then God breathed life into him. And so in order to even think about this, we have to look at what is it that is unique about life? Or let's not even say unique. What are the characteristics of a living cell? And then attempt to explain how matter can be organized into those types of characteristics. And I already gave something away by saying organized. Another fundamental start point is to realize that a living cell differs from just the physical constituents of a cell. If you take a living cell and put it in a blender and split it up into its basic atoms from which it is assembled, it's no longer a cell, and it is no longer alive. Now, it is true that most of the popularizers of an evolutionary worldview, and that accommodates almost everything you see on television, certainly the Cosmos show, and everything you would see on the Discovery Channel, the National Geographic Channel, uh, Animal Planet, just about anything else you would see on television as well as mainstream academia, virtually any science department in the entire country, and actually the majority of the theology departments would also present this perspective, unfortunately. So it is very commonly presented that, of course, life arose from just chemicals. In fact, it's called chemical evolution. Now, these popularizers will admit it is an unsolved problem. But, what kind of unsolved problem is this? Is this one where the nature of it being unsolved is, well, we're close to figuring it out, we've got an awful lot of it figured out, but not quite all of it yet, so it remains unsolved, but we really have a great handle on what's going on? Or, is it the type of unsolved problem where it would be accurate to say, all the detailed information we have about what's required points to the idea that it could never have happened by purely naturalistic means, that it's virtually impossible. So which kind of unsolved problem is it, and how is it portrayed to you? 
There's a very good and very recent article over at AnswersInGenesis.org titled Attempts to Trace Life Back to Chemical Origins Maps the Willful Ignorance of the Hunters. Now, the author, Dr. Elizabeth Mitchell, is a creationist and believes that life came by the supernatural efforts, activities of God himself. And she's commenting on a very large review just recently published in the American Chemical Society's Chemical Reviews about research into the origin of life. And it is, after all, a chemistry question. The researchers report the origin of life is a fascinating, unresolved problem. And again, as I mentioned in yesterday's episode, the way this was presented in the first episode of Cosmos was the following. Tyson said, The origin of life is one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of science. And then scooping up some water, he added, That's life cooking, evolving all the biochemical recipes for its incredibly complex activities thereby giving the strong impression that if you have water and chemicals, you have life evolving. That perspective is echoed very frequently in the area of the study of astrobiology, that is, the study of life in outer space, a study for which there is no evidence. I find that rather interesting. We've never seen life in outer space, and yet you can study astrobiology. What they really study is chemistry molecules that they believe came from space on meteorites, etc., and they look at the properties of molecules and make implications about previous life. But notice the headlines. Every time they think they have any evidence of liquid water anywhere in the solar system or the universe, the immediate conclusion is life may well have evolved there. It appears that all you need is water and some chemicals, and life will simply evolve. Well, how true is that perspective? And let me remind you of the article at University of California, Santa Barbara, UCSB, about the origin of cells, in which the entire article never mentions the word information at all. And yet, information is a absolutely fundamental constituent of life. Life is highly organized and contains enormous amounts of complex information. So if you're really going to address the origin of life, you have to explain how the information got into the cell. To simply ignore it is ridiculous. Uh, let me tell you a little story about my wife, one, one of her hobbies, if you will. She likes to knit, although she does not use knitting needles. She uses a circular loom called a nifty knitter, and has in fact become sort of an evangelist for nifty knitters, meaning that she has explained these to many people who then joined in and began using nifty knitter looms. And she's made hundreds of little baby caps and other types of clothing for infants. And in fact, she and a group of ladies at church get together and knit and talk and produce baby clothes that are given to the hospital for to go home to babies born to underprivileged families that might not have the resources to purchase a bunch of baby clothes. So I'm driving along thinking about the origin of life and some of the chemical complexities and issues involved there. My wife is sitting next to me with her nifty knitter loom creating something with her hands and I notice this hat consists of nothing but a single thread of yarn. And so I thought about that a bit, and I asked her a few questions about knitted items. 
And we looked up a little bit on the internet. Turns out if you uh, have a knitted pullover sweater, a large size, depending upon the density of the knit, etc., it could well have over half a mile of yarn in it. Something like 900 yards of yarn in one pullover sweater. That's pretty interesting. So picture a half mile long piece of yarn, which is then massaged with knitting needles using various stitches, multiple distinct types of knitting stitches to mess with this piece of yarn. And when you're all done, you've got a pullover sweater. Now keep in mind the sweater consists of nothing but yarn, the material constituents of the sweater. It's just yarn, right? Now let's say it's wool yarn, and let's say I then tell you that I've discovered that hair, wool, grows on sheep, and that sometimes these hairs just wind up kind of getting wrapped around each other, and they form something that looks very much like one of those pieces of yarn from which the sweater was made. And then I confidently tell you, I've just explained to you the origin of that pullover sweater. After all, I've explained to you a likely origin of the material from which it consists, right? Well, you would laugh at me and realize I've done no such thing. What is the missing ingredient? Even if I explain the origin of 900 yards of yarn, have I explained where that sweater came from? What's missing? It's the information content that an intelligent agent imposed upon the yarn via knitting needles. That information organized the yarn in a very specific way, and that organization is what allows it to be something other than just a piece of yarn, just a straight piece of yarn. Furthermore, the way that organization had to be done is there's multiple types of stitches. They have to be done in the correct order. In other words, it's following a pattern. There's a pre-existing pattern or concept that results in this yarn being organized into a sweater. Without the creative concept or pattern, you'd never get a sweater. If I sat down with knitting needles and somebody showed me how to do a couple different stitches, and I sat there for the next 50 years, a sweater would never originate out of that yarn. You'd get nothing but a knotted up mess. So just understand, something as simple as a pullover sweater knitted from wool yarn shows the necessity of an initial concept, a pattern, and then the intelligent imposition of organization onto the matter itself to organize it in a way that would never happen by purely natural laws, that is, without the effect of intelligence. Now, whether a human being knits it together or a machine does it where the machine has been programmed by a human being, in either case, an intelligent agent is causing this organization to occur in a very precise way. I dare say if one tried to calculate the odds of a pullover sweater forming by purely natural means without any intelligent intervention, they'd be rather long odds, wouldn't they? I'd be willing to bet uh, my meager income that it would never happen. Well, what's the point of this? The point is simply that when something is highly organized, whether it's just a pullover knitted sweater, or certainly if it's a living cell, which is almost infinitely more organized than a pullover sweater, but if one tries to explain to you only the source of the material, 
they are not even attempting to explain to you the source of the finished object. If you get your head wrapped around that little game, you'll immediately realize that virtually all attempts to explain the origin of life don't even really attempt to explain the origin of life. They only attempt to explain the potential origin of some of the material from life. So let's do a quick summary. If I explain to you the origin of wool yarn, I have not explained to you the origin of a pullover knitted sweater. That knitted sweater represents both an initial concept or pattern, as well as the efforts, the results of the activity of an intelligent agent in organizing that single piece of yarn into a sweater via multiple types of knitting stitches. Let's try a different analogy now. Let's think about, let's say, a car engine. I've had the misfortune, I guess, of having to work on my cars more than I would like, and I've learned a little bit about them, but I am by no means a mechanic. So I took a look at the internet, good old wiki answers, and asked the question, how many moving parts are there in a gas engine? And here's the answer. There are many different types of moving parts. Crankshaft, connecting rods, pistons, intake valves, exhaust valves, camshaft, lifters, push rods, rocker arms, oil pump, fuel pump, timing chain, distributor, and distributor parts, and it depends on what you consider moving. Crankshaft pulley, alternator pulley, alternator water pump, power steering pump and pulley, fan, thermostat, carburetor, etc. Altogether, there are over 200 plus moving parts in an engine. I suspect many of you have an image in your head, or at some point in your life, seen a diagram of an exploded gasoline engine. Parts all laid out. Lots and lots of parts laid out. Many of them similar to each other, some identical, lots of different types of parts, and they're all laying there on the floor of a garage, ready to be assembled into a functioning gasoline engine. Now, as any of you who have ever tried to work on a car engine know, even if you just replace a gasket you darn well better reassemble that correctly or it won't work right. Your gasket will leak. In fact, you better torque the head bolts down to the proper torque and in the proper sequence if you even want it to work. It's not enough just to have the correct parts. They must be assembled and they must be assembled in the proper order and they must be assembled very precisely with precisely the right layout relationship between the parts, torque on bolts, etc. Now keep that in mind and let me tell you another story here. I'm going to explain to you how we're very far along toward understanding the origin of a gasoline engine by purely natural means. We've noticed that in volcanoes, you often get this molten lava that comes out, and sometimes in this molten lava, there is metal. And if you allow it to cool... It will consolidate itself into fragments of metal. And sometimes, some of these pieces of metal look sort of like the crankshaft on an engine. And sometimes, some of these pieces of metal that cool out of the lava have a resemblance to a head bolt. And so it's obvious that the parts of a gasoline engine simply arose by the natural laws affecting the cooling of liquid metal from volcanoes. So you can confidently believe that there's no need for an intelligent designer for a gasoline engine. 
that's about the type of argument presented when you read them about the naturalistic origin of life. I dare say that not 1% of you could assemble a fully functioning V12 gasoline engine if I had all the parts drop shipped to your garage and spread out on the floor for you. I know I couldn't. Once again, there is the necessity of a great deal of highly specific information. We need the manual on how this stuff gets put together. You need the concept of a gasoline engine first. Then you need the specific instructions on how to assemble all the parts together to produce the gasoline engine. And you need the activities to perform the assembly. This kind of stuff doesn't happen on its own. If I put a bunch of the parts into my clothes dryer and tumble it from now until doomsday, they'll never come out as assembled subcomponents. So you not only need the information, you need the assembly action of an intelligent agent. At least to get the first one. Let's think about an entire factory that produces gasoline engines by a robot. There's this enormous factory. It contains a whole bunch of robots. They are programmed to assemble parts together and produce gasoline engines. And in fact, they can machine the parts from raw materials as well. And these robots are actually able to produce other robots just like themselves. They can reproduce by using the equipment within the factory. They have the necessary programming to produce themselves. And in fact, they're able to produce the mechanisms that move the parts around, and this factory can actually completely reproduce itself. It can build another factory next door, fully capable of also producing gasoline engines. Now, if I observe such a factory produce another factory, that is, reproduce itself, and I look closely at how it does that, is it going to give me any idea how the original factory was put together? Absolutely not, because the original factory couldn't have been done by the robots because the robots didn't exist. And all of the highly specific programming for the computers that control the robots also didn't exist. So if I'm going to explain to you how it is that we have gasoline engines, or I'm going to explain to you how it is we have factories that produce gasoline engines, it isn't good enough to tell you how these factories reproduce themselves. I have to tell you how the first factory was produced. And I have to tell you this in enough detail to explain how it really happened. If I simply tell you that story about molten metal cooling out of lava and producing pieces that look like parts of the factory, that really doesn't explain where that factory came from. I'm just trying to fool you into thinking we'll eventually figure it out. Don't ask too many questions, and certainly don't worry about it. Now, suppose we had a book that claimed to be written by the designer and original builder of that factory that can build gasoline engines and can reproduce itself, that is, create new factories. And furthermore, within this book, it says that if you simply look at this factory, it's going to be obvious that it didn't make itself. The action of me, the designer, is going to be obvious if you simply examine it. And furthermore, the book says that if I try to pretend that there is no necessity 
of a designer and builder for this factory originally, and that it just somehow happened by itself, if I try to pretend that, that I'm without excuse. And that means there's sufficient information to realize fully that my conclusion cannot be true. And so believing it, it's an excuse, not a reason. And if I don't have solid, real reasons to believe that this factory could in fact have produced itself somehow from pure matter, if I really don't have good reasons for that, then all I have are excuses. Now let's add to this picture a little bit. Let's suppose that when I examine this factory, I find out the robot that does the assembly has an extremely complex computer program built into it. Furthermore, I look at what it does and I find on the shelves diagrams of how gasoline engines are to be assembled, an enormous set of assembly instructions, thousands and thousands of pages of detailed instructions on how to make every single one of the components, every piece that goes into this engine, as well as how to assemble it correctly. I find all of that information written down, and then I find it's been implemented into a computer program, and furthermore, there's a computer that's able to execute this program. I look closely at these robots that do the assembly, and I find out they're controlled by a computer that reads the program. The computer itself is enormously complex, and I don't even fully understand how it works, but I know it in fact reads in the instructions in the program and acts upon them. And I also know, happen to be a software engineer myself, so I also know human beings are able to write computer programs. We are able to design and build computers that can then read those programs and do things that are rather interesting. So in our ordinary, everyday experience, we have an understanding as to how that actually occurs that an intelligent agent, human beings, are involved in the design and production of the computer and the design and creation of the software programs that the computer executes. Furthermore, we've studied mathematics and this thing called information science, and one of the conclusions from information science is that information always arises from other information we realize there's no naturalistic means to get information where there is none to begin with. And I mean the type of information that specifies how something is to be done. So our experience and our understanding and our science explains all these things to us, and yet knowing this, I still insist nobody designed that engine factory. It happened by purely naturalistic means, just the laws of physics and chemistry. That's all it took. Oh, and we've got a lot of energy coming from the sun. That provides the energy to do all of that. That's all it took. There is no evidence whatsoever of a designer. And furthermore, I don't even want our public schools to ever discuss this issue. Those of you who think there is evidence of a designer for this factory are simply whack job religious fanatics. You are not scientists. And thinking that way is not scientific whatsoever. After all, anything that reaches a conclusion that implies there might be something beyond the purely material is not scientific. Why not? Because I just define the word that way. That's why not. 
Don't tell me that's not how Isaac Newton understood the word. Who cares? He was before Darwin. Remember, as our hero Lewinton said, we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. We can't even allow a discussion of the evidence for an intelligent designer. We need to attack those people who would dare do such a thing as the Luddites that they are. We need to remove their PhDs. If they don't have it yet, we need to make sure they don't get one. If they're the editor of a journal that dares to publish an article like this, they need to be removed from being the editor of that journal. Cancel their professorship. Stop their funding of their grants. Make sure these people are recognized for the morons that they are. Unfortunately, the logic I just gave an analogy to and the activities of suppression that I just alluded to are occurring all around us. Open your eyes and don't be fooled. SeeCreationMythOrMiracle.com